0: everyone welcome to the Charvak podcast this is your host kushal nehra all right today's podcast is titled hinduism from a british lens and to discuss hinduism and the british lens after a gap of two and a half years if i'm correct or maybe two years i don't keep track drishti is back on the podcast so drishti thanks for coming again
1: namaste namaste everyone it's great to be back so thank you for having me
0: so, Drishti, in case people don't know about you and they've not seen you uh, or seen the previous discussion on the podcast, so how about this? We start like this. Why don't you tell everybody a bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So, um, namaste everyone. So, my name is Drishti. Um I featured on the Jarvik podcast two years ago because of my history. So, About 10 years ago, I made the decision to leave Islam, and along the way, I discovered and fell in love with Hindu Dharma. And that's really been, I guess, a really life-defining experience for me. Um, From that, I went on to get involved with an organization called NHSF, so the National Hindu Students Forum in the UK. I was with them for 10 years, and I had the good fortune of um, being the national president for about four years. Uh, and now I work in m um, and integration by day. And I also work with the Hindu American Foundation um, outside of work as well. So that's me.
0: Awesome. Drishti, so, all right. So we had a very interesting discussion the first time. It was actually one of the most popular podcasts, at least for me. Uh, a lot of... Uh, so usually, you know, I gauge the popularity of the podcast, not just from the views. I also gauge the popularity of a podcast from the amount of emails I get, personal emails about the podcast. So so the highest amount of emails I've gotten was when I spoke with you. So let's, let's start with this, right? What has been your experience? Because we're talking on the podcast now after a gap of a good two plus years. So how has your journey as a Hindu been? in that gap from, let's say, 2019, 18, 19 to, say, 21 now? How has, has your understanding of Hinduism changed? Or have you changed as a Hindu? How has the journey been?
1: Sure. Um, and you know, it's a brilliant question to start off with, because I think the, the right answer or the summation that I can give is that as it was in my first eight years and as it has been in the last two years, it's a constant evolution. I don't think when you are defining yourself as a Hindu or embracing Hindu dharma, you come to this point where you say, aha, I've arrived. Now I'm it. Now I'm perfect. It's a constant evolution. So for me, you know, it's been continuous work in terms of like my spiritual sadhana, my understanding, how I articulate Hindu dharma, but also what's relevant. You know, where are some ideas that I've been holding on to that I have to let go of? Uh, where are there opportunities for me to express how I'm Hindu more and, uh, you know, in a better way, but also relate to others? Because we, we have um, an opportunity, I think, to take Hindu dharma from being something that belongs to just a certain set of people. And by that, I mean brown, Indian, those who have ancestors in India and really start to expand what it means to be Hindu um, from a principle and practice perspective. So this notion of sustainability has been really big for me in the last 18 months or so whereby can we articulate dharma in a way that makes sense for the challenges we have in our world today but also that it opens it up so it doesn't feel so much more like a religion but more as a cultural practice or a way of life and then it's something that many more can embrace
0: okay so uh so here's the thing now obviously today we're going to be talking about hinduism from a british lens so let's say. Here's the thing. Now, I have a particular mindset when it comes to what constitutes being a Hindu. Now, obviously, I'm not saying there will be no overlapping conditions or prerequisites when it comes to a British Hindu or an American Hindu or, let's say, a Hindu born and raised in India. But if I was to ask you, because let's start with, see, we can always discuss the similarities and sing Kumbaya and dance around in the aisles. And it makes no sense. I was looking forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) No, but we will focus on the uniqueness of so, so so think about it now as you said uh, when we started with the introduction right you mentioned you're also now associated with the Hindu American Foundation so think about this so now you are dealing with the Hindu American Foundation now American Hindus have a unique experience British Hindus have a unique experience and Indian Hindus have a unique experience now what would you say are things that you find different from in terms of because look not only just knowing me or interacting with me, you meet so many Hindus from India, whether it's from the internet or when you you know travel to India or they travel to the UK. Now what are the differentiating factors? not I'm not saying this in a negative sense, just in the sense of okay, these guys look at Hinduism differently and for them Hinduism is a completely different experience in this area. So have you observed something like that?
1: Sure. So, a few points come to mind, and I don't think they're universal, but these are just points that I'll put out there. And I would love your rebuttal or your reflections uh, from an Indian perspective as well. So, the one thing that I've noticed more and more personally, and I, let me start with a caveat actually. So, my experience of being Hindu, I would say, is quote unquote an enlightened or more uh, progressive experience. I think I've got it quite good in what I experience as a British Hindu. Now, I've had some exposure. To what different experiences are like here on these aisles and of course globally um, but I just want to caveat that so so when I talk from my perspective like, like let's just understand where I'm coming from so first thing that I would point out um, where I think there is a difference is our lifestyle choices so how do we take the principles of being Hindu the cultural principles and embed them in our lives so by that I mean our words our thoughts and our actions right So things like being compassionate, if we're going to take ahimsa and really, you know, um, internalize it, what does that look like? Well, it means that even the words I speak to another, am I thinking about the impact that they would have? Um, My actions, so not just my actions for my family, but also the actions, like the consequence of my actions to the environment, to animals, to society, so on and so forth, what does that look like? So, you know, here in the UK, something that i've seen that i absolutely love is this move of embracing veganism i think in the last 12 months um we've had such an up, like a spike in um, the growth of veganism here in the uk like i think it's up by 40 percent or so right now with nhsef when i was visiting students so many students four years ago they were not vegan right they would be vegetarian maybe questioning vegetarianism now you know, I can go around the country, I can go to people's homes and there's generally like a vegan option available when you're having jai. People are actively talking about why they're vegan, some, you know, go down the activist route and some are just happy with practicing compassion on a personal basis. Now that's extending from the personal and the individual into the mundos, into that institutional, or into that um, communal space of worship or meditation. And so pujas and artis and different practices are now being, um, you know, completed or done with vegan milk, with soya milk or with, um, with oat milk. And in other instances, the minimization of using cow's milk is in practice. Now that for me is a, a, a good symbol or it's a good sign of how Hindu dharma is an evolution. You have a principle. It's not an absolute ruling. It's not this is the way things are. It's... Okay, if we take this principle, how do I apply it given these circumstances, given what the dairy industry is like here today? Um, so that for me, I think, is a, um, an example of Hindu Dharma in action in the UK. But do I see that mirrored across when I interact with uh, Hindus from India? Not necessarily. Now, India is a really big place. I can't claim to have all, you know, access to all of these experiences, but that's like one example. So, lifestyle and you know how we choose to practice and apply our principles. So, veganism uh, and what we do in Mondays, I guess, is like one snapshot of that. I think another is um, this notion of responsibility. So, I'm totally going to quote uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti here. Right? If I have the ability to respond, I have the responsibility to do something. And so this notion of I need to keep developing myself as an individual, right? not just um, my skills, which I'll get through my job, I'll get through you know, education, so on and so forth. But I'll also accumulate um, you know, clarity uh, and a rootedness with a set of values. We can call that character, we can call that a set of values, whichever we prefer. But those two things will really const- you know, constitute how I can respond to things in the world. And so, this notion of internalizing and saying, okay, if this is how my story is portrayed, or if this is how, or this is what's happening under my roof or on my land or, you know, in my country, how do I respond to it? What am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. I think that's a growing notion that we're seeing here in the UK. There's a lot, I think, also in the US, you know, um, examples that we've seen. So, you had uh, this case at Oxford with Abhijit Sarkar speaking. Uh, you know, in an inflammatory way towards the Hindu tradition. Now, Mm -hmm. I'll just use that as an example. My question would be, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, would we have had young people mobilising in the way, campaigning on campuses to say, this is not right, this does not represent me. So that ability to respond to say, my story will not be told by another, I will own my story, is I think a, a progressive journey that we're seeing here as well. Um, and then I think extending onto that, and this is probably a bit more tenuous where I'd want your feedback, but this notion of externalizing, you know, um, and I'll I'll say this from where I came from. So, you know, in Islam, if something bad happened, it'd be God's will. If something bad happened, you'd have a victim mentality of, oh, poor me, why does everything have to happen to me? Why can't I get a break in life for once? What have I done that's been so terrible? Now that was like You know 10 plus years ago for me whereas now it's okay these are my circumstances how do i respond to them and what can i control i'll just focus on that i think that's a really big difference um, of embracing a plural progressive um set of values versus something that you know is a bit more rigid and dogmatic now i don't necessarily always experience that difference when speaking to people internationally that notion of this is happening to me, you know, I must have some um, accumulated some bad karma or something, and that's why it's happening to me. And so that notion I see is very different here in the UK versus what I've experienced of India.
0: So that's very interesting so let's let's talk about this let's unpack this a little bit more Mm. now obviously uh the veganism bit i can understand because uh you can't be a vegan in india everything is the dairy products paneer is all over india (laughs) so so you can't escape i'll have to introduce
1: you to my friend (laughs) tofu uh
0: no we've had our discussions offline about that (laughs) but you know this bit about uh karma and and the cumulative effects now so this is a is this is a technical question right this is a theological understanding of hinduism where so what you're saying is that what you've experienced in the community in uk there are different ways of theologically understanding hinduism in comparison to how uh people would theologically understand hinduism in india now my my question my my follow-up question to that would be how much of the anglo-saxon value system or the anglosphere's value uh you know set of values have got to do with that is it i am force-fitting my understanding of hinduism on the basis of my external reality or hinduism has that flexibility? You see what I'm trying to say?
1: Kind of, kind of. So let me let me try respond, and then you can tell me if I've gone off track. So, so, ha- so something that um, stands out in this way is if we look at um, British culture, if we look at English culture, there is a strong sense of individualism right so you start with I and then you know your concern extends to others whereas if I think of what the Hindu um, expression that is building in the UK is is actually I will be looked after if I can care for others if my base can be bigger than who I am and so your starting point isn't the individual your starting point is always greater it might start at the family It might start at your street, it might start at your community, and then it will expand out into, you know, like my city, my county, my country. And so that notion of always expanding where I have the ability to respond, where should my concern be? And how do I respond to circumstances, not just for me as an individual, but as a wider impact? I think that's the differentiator um, to respond to what I think your question was.
0: That's fair enough, but again, see, so like I said, uh, a lot of times what I have seen. So I'll give you another another good example. So this has been my experience in academic circles in the uh, in the West in general. So when you read philosophy schools or or just uh, academic papers in general, so this is the standard line given in the West. Uh, we, the West, are individualists. Asia and the Indians included collective, collectivist societies. Now, I have um, never kind of agreed with that. In fact, I'm going to be maybe writing about it someday or maybe do a monologue on it because my understanding is that India is not individualist in the sense of how maybe the West understands individualism to be very crude, very, you know, my way of uh, or the highway kind of uh, uh, individualism. But India is also not entirely uh, collectivist either. So, so let's take moksha or nirvana or you know the last journey for a Hindu. Obviously, for a for for a Hindu who believes in certain prerequisite conditions like an atman and a reincarnation, etc., etc. Obviously, for me it doesn't apply, but that's fine. But I'm just talking about the the large you know the larger genre of Hindus here. By and large, most darshanas believe in that. Now, the point is that. Your journey, even for the Atman, is an individual journey. So in that sense, spiritually, Hinduism is very individualistic. Like my karma or my journey is my individual journey. But in spite of that, we do have a sense of a collective. We do have society. We do have rules. We do have smritis. We do have all of that. So when you but if you look at it from the sense of a Western perspective, where you either have that Protestant ethic, fierce individualism, and it kind of uh, extends to every aspect of your life, which, which in a way, is the birth of Western secularism too. And uh, although the Indian version of secularism is just bollocks, but that's for another day. But do you think a lot of that has played into it, and people tend to confuse Hinduism even at a theological level? Okay. So I think
1: there's a there's a several points I want to respond. In that. Sure. So let's do them one at a time. Um, so, your, 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 your question is Are we looking at Hindu dharma through an Abrahamic lens, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I think there are lots of misconstructions. And, like, one of the things that I want to talk about is actually um, how we understand the Hindu view of women. Uh, and how we've interpreted that through an Abrahamic lens, said it's backwards, and actually maybe there's something else to look at there, and we'll come to that um, later on, I'm sure. So, do I think it's being looked at through an Abrahamic lens? Absolutely. I think if we look at, you know, even just this notion of bhagavan, um, you know, you've got six, eight different qualities that come from the word Bhaga, and yet here in, you know, in common vernacular, you reduce it to mean God. It doesn't mean God, you know, at, at its simplest level, you could say it means enlightened being. The same thing with karma. You know, there are parallels drawn into sin and reward from the Abrahamic theologies. This notion of heaven and hell, it's, it's a state that you live in now. It's not some place you're going to go to uh, from a Hindu view. So, so yes, I think that there has been an Abrahamization of the Hindu experience. And I think that's universal like across the world. I don't think that's just limited to these isles. Um, I think the second part to it is not just what exists in academia and academic circles at like a, you know, at a degree level, but also what we experience um, within schools. So today in schools, the way Hindu dharma is taught, um, or Hinduism is taught in schools, you know, it's, um, there are three gods, generator, operator, destroyer, that's that's what God stands for, uh, you know, Uh, nuclear weapons are justified because of the existence of astras in some of the texts and the hindus believe in the caste system that's pretty much largely the messaging that's going out to people and even then it's not studied en masse but when it is taught it's taught in that way with you know images of India depicting what being hindu uh, must be like as an experience Um, and that leads to to a whole other set of issues Um, but one thing that i wanted to i guess offer a slightly different lens to with what you've said and i'll try and recall as much of that as i can is that perhaps we look at things um with this abrahamic lens and with it comes a masculine archetype so if we look at the abrahamic tradition so i'm talking about christianity islam and judaism you don't have um, the presence really of female deities of the, you know female divinity so on and so forth so how to interact and experience um, how to interact and experience women in different ways but also different ideas the feminine is limited and so you can't help but then look at things from a masculine perspective. And that leads to a bit more aggression. That leads to, you know, um, my way or the highway. This is the right way. It leads to, I think, and I, I'd, I'd probably be stretching here, but um, supporting an exclusivist way of thinking rather than a plural way of thinking. To so then yeah, settle but- back on that. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, no. So just just to ask you a question about this, this particular statement, but this, this is sometimes where I have a difference of opinion. I'm not saying you do that, but I've seen this tendency in Western Hindus where uh, they use Abrahamism. Abrahamism is very exclusivist. I do get it. But do you think Hindus in the West tend to get too relativistic in response to that? Ooh.
1: I think with the rise of postmodern ideas in the common spaces it can happen but I think that this is because Hindus here and more generally are a little bit confused a little bit muddled on identity and are finding their self-expression so rather than it being a direct reaction I think that there is you know through the history, like Hindu, or like the Hindu civilization is the oldest living civilization we have in the world. And it's had its highs and its lows. And I would say 800 to a thousand years, we've had a big blip, right? So trying to rise back out of that is not going to be a straight and easy trajectory. It's not going to be the most simple thing to do. Um, and so Hindus, I think, in the world over are discovering their self-expression, you know, politically, socially, culturally. Um, it's going to take some time to dust off, you know, all the all the mud that's there and you know, um, find a more elegant, articulate way to express who we are, but also with some diversity. So your notion of my Atma uh, that you articulated in my Atma and my Gurma, and then that having um Consequences for me as an individual, as an individual atma, could be countered with a different view, where actually maybe you know that doesn't necessarily matter because all together we come into the same spiritual er- energy. So I can let go of this notion of my own or my sukshma sharira or what what so on and so forth. And you have the ability to do that as a hindu. You and I can differ in our opinions, but you and I will still see one another as hindu, even though we might not have. Uh, a common thread that binds us, that might bind the third Hindu that we meet on the street. So I think that's quite important to consider there too.
0: It is, but okay. This has um, this has been my experience. Uh, so I, I don't have to put it, but I've had the unique uh, experience of living in the West, living in India, getting married to a Westerner. So again, you have that constant Westerners perspective with you all the time. And so let me draw this narrative for you. So when I used to live in Canada, um, my wife's experience was very different from mine. It is actually only after I got married to a Hindu from the West did I understand that Western Hindus and Hindus from India are actually different in many ways. Now, how are they different in many ways? So let's get down and dirty now. So caste let's talk about it yeah. now yeah. my wife would uh, and look we've known each other for a while now and this has been my experience with all of you guys too and i'm just using my story with my wife as an example because i think it's always easier to explain things so she would not understand what caste is she would not and in fact till the extent where i would say no no there is casteism in our society and it stems scripturally and societally. In some cases, the scriptural claims that are made by certain people are wrong. But in many cases, they're absolutely spot on. And and she would always say, but I've not experienced any caste in my life at all. Never in my life. I was raised in in a in a society where I don't even know what my caste is. I was never told that. I was born in a society. I had Christian friends. I had Muslim friends. I had friends who were atheists. I never understand caste. And I would not get her but eventually i did but she also got me because when she moved to india and then she saw casteism in real life she saw it with her own two eyes and then she said oh this is what you mean by casteism now this is now this is where i feel at times and this is my view that when you preach the caste question to hindus in the west While I'm sympathetic to claim number one, which was my wife's claim that, look, I've never experienced it. Why do you how can I answer about something that I've never experienced individually? It doesn't even come in my brain. But then where I disagree is it stems into areas where Hinduism has no caste. And then you get into moral relativism and all the booga booga. So now where do you stand in this question? So if somebody was to come to you, because you spoke about the stereotype, and I know the caste, cows, and curries is very irritating and we all want to fight that whether I'm sitting in India or you're sitting in England but the point is that while we can fight the cast cows and curry stereotype we still don't throw the narrative that there is no such thing as discrimination right so how do we deal with yeah. that or how do British Hindus deal with that
1: yeah so so I'm going to have to agree with your wife in the sense of I don't experience it I've never experienced it in the 10 years that you know I've had um, the pleasure of interacting with the Hindu community um, but I won't stop there so I think that this is a non-negotiable I don't think you know we've seen the evolution of it in the UK with um, you know it coming into legal vernacular and so on and so forth and I think w- there's no necessary reason to justify it I don't think we need to hark back to the caste, uh, sorry to the past uh, to about Jati Varna I feel as though this is something that just we just have to evolve out of, you know, lock, stop, barrel, it's it's done, it, you know, what social purpose does it serve? And I think education and uh, more education is the way forward. So in the UK, um, we've not got the experience of caste, and that's been in one or two generations, that's removed. The only times you might hear of it is from those individuals who were born and brought up in India who live here in the UK where it might come into conversation right so within one or two generations it's been removed and that for me is a sign uh, or an indication you know a compass of where I feel India would need to progress socially evolve out of it because we do need social fluidity you know Um, and we have parallels that we could draw with like, you know, what's happening in the world today with things like social media, where people get judged by posts that come up ten years ago rather than who they are as an individual. And for me, to embrace Hindu Dharma fully is to understand that human beings evolve and they learn and they also change. So whereas you may have been, you know, a businessman before and now you've become a podcaster, that evolution is totally natural and that's fine because you as a human being have evolved. And to be able to accept that. Um, I think is really important so for me I, I think that there's no need to justify caste there's no need to say it had a purpose that if it did fine, great that day is gone in the society that we live in today we need social fluidity we need social mobility and we need to see people for their merits you know not necessarily the family that they were born into or what circumstance they were born into what control do we have over that so I, I think it needs to go is my personal opinion
0: so you know somebody in the live chat has asked this brilliant question. So and I think this would be a great follow up. I, uh, uh, I would have maybe asked it later on, but I think I'll just go for it now. So it's a good question: How entrenched is caste among British Hindus with respect to marriage and intermingling? And follow up: Have you been asked your caste while engaging with the community or temple visits? It's a good question.
1: Okay. Second one, never.
0: Great. So so
1: never been asked my caste. Um, and in terms of um, marriage, um, you know, I I wouldn't even know where to begin because it's not a conversation whereby I go and ask a friend, oh, what cast are you or what cast <laughs> is your husband? So how do I really answer that question? Do You know, it's it's not a common experience.
0: <laughs> this right here is the fundamental difference between hinduism outside india and hinduism in india it's reducing in india drishti and believe me it is the more india gets urbanized like in mumbai you will you will see casteism but not that much you have to go like say one hour two hours away from mumbai and you will mm. see caste right in your face because still i mean you look at how uh, Still, India is relatively endogamous even now. It's reduced significantly, but it still is. But this is the thing. Why did I ask you this question? Because what was this podcast about? Hinduism from a British lens. And the question is so alien to you, right? You could not <laughs> process it. You were like, I mean, in Hindi, kya <laughs> It's that expression, right? But it's very important. It's my job to ask this question and to bust this myth with the world and experts who are non hindu of hinduism who want to paint and they want to pummel hindus outside india and i and i have no other word to use other than pummel hindus outside india with this caste stick because something like that happens in india so this is my follow up question to you drishti and this fits right into this this force fitting of a homogenous hinduism and, the, and this this is not done honestly by Hindus outside India or Hindus in India. This is done by a certain clique of individuals. We don't need to name them but there is a certain clique it is a it's a global religion of progressivism that is superimposing a mono, you know a very homogeneous Hinduism where everybody is the same. Now here's the thing right something happens in the realm of I'm sorry politics, or social life in india and this clique will come to you oh drishti what do you think about this opinion and he, you know i have never understood this drishti it's like you know uh, imagine some italian you know used to be from italy but was born and raised in england now whatever happens in italian social life or uh, italian political life nobody would dare ask this question to an Italian Brit. But for some reason, this honor is bestowed upon Indian Hindus or people of Indian origin as if they have to answer for everything. Some village in India had a problem. Trishti, what do you think about this as a Hindu? How do you react to that? So how
1: do I react to those instances? it's interesting right because i think if we take one step back why does this happen and what is this experience like what's what's underpinning this experience and the way i see it is that the hindu civilization the hindu culture the hindu tradition is like the last bastion or the last largest bastion of pluralism whereas in the world over you do not have pluralism you know you've got exclusivism And so when engaging in these conversations, you are having almost like a battle of frameworks of trying to interpret pluralism through the lens or the framework of, you know, an individual way or Abrahamic or a exclusive way to look at the world where there is a moral authority on what is right and wrong. And therefore, and and also extending into that Abrahamic um, view of the world, uh, that there must be a defined point of right and wrong. So these traditions... Uh, if we're going to look at it from a religious perspective, we will have a book, a scripture that is a moral authority. That's not the case in Hindu dharma. So in school, when young people are asked, what's your book? What's your defining authority? Hindus don't have an answer. You know, just because it's force-fitted, you say Ah, the Gita. It's not true, but that's a force-fit because you're viewing Hindu dharma from that lens. And then when you come to this example in the village, um, you know, being able to answer, you're, you're meant to be able to give this moral right and wrong, whereas we work from principles. And so, you know, I don't feel the need to answer for it. I don't feel the need to be defensive all the time. And I absolutely agree. It is a special uh, treat reserved for, you know, in those outside of India and in India. Um, and in terms of responding to it, I would want to be dismantling the framework. So what authority or why is this question coming to me and why am I you know in any way obligated to answer it uh, to justify to justify it? I can say it's wrong and still be comfortable with my Hindu identity. I can say, oh that's the right thing and this is why if I'm educated, but I'm not obligated. Um, and so I'd want to dismantle what the driving force is um, for such questioning, but also introduce my own definitions in such an instance.
0: Yes, yeah, so I'll tell you how I have never understood this way. So, so I have done this. Again, I'm a little brash for normal people, but uh, I've been. It's it was interesting that that person did not realize that uh, uh, I'm from India. My accent should have been a giveaway, but they still did not get it. But they asked me this question, and I asked them, "So, where are you from?" And that person said, "I'm from X Y Z country." But To that person's bad luck I follow politics of that country very well and I started asking them questions about their country's politics and I was like once you answer each and every question about your country's politics he's like that's not my country I'm American man I was like well then why are you asking me this question are you a racist American and that's when they got it oh I'm not supposed to ask this question and it shows in a very weird way that that acceptance that um, these are our people is still not seeped into the larger narrative? Or am I over, you know, I'm overdoing it? I I could be. And I'm open to that. I don't know,
1: because you know I feel quite comfortable personally with my British Hindu identity like just before we started I joked and said oh god I've got to be really British I need to get my cup of tea before we get started um so is there a lack of appreciation or a lack of assimilation in that sense for me no in terms of how I've been viewed by society and my experience of that um again I I don't think that happens at an individual level um from your interactions but where you've got these narratives that swim around in media i feel like that's a different ball game that we're playing there you know their ideas are narratives are being formed and put forward um and like you know you've dismantled it quite elegantly in the example that you just gave but every instance the 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 you know the hindu might have to go on the defense to say how do i penetrate through this wall or actually let me simply disengage but that is where I think that point about responsibility that I mentioned right at the start of the speaking comes in, right? So who's going to tell my story? Now, you know, for for years and years, um, you know, Murtis have been described as idols. Or for years and years, Bhagavan's been reduced to God. For years and years, karma has been misinterpreted. All of these things. But that's because somebody else has been telling my story as a Hindu So what responsibility do I take to educate myself, but then also introduce a more authentic narrative? And I think we're at that crossroads where we're discovering how to articulate it and also penetrate through these frameworks where our story is being told for us. Um, And I think we have a unique responsibility here, especially when we're looking to those powers that you alluded to or those institutions that you alluded to in educating the world about pluralism, about acceptance, and the need for or are fluidity in the sense of I can be a British Hindu where I hold my values, you know, those, those values of being rooted or connected to Bharatiya culture, to understanding values that I want to live my life by, living in you know in harmony with Dharma. But then also also having a civic responsibility for my karma And that's a unique assimilation of my Hindu values that come from ancient India and my British values where you know where I live. You know where i've been born and i live today and that's a unique identity from the american hindu that's a unique identity from an indian hindu and so they they are all different and that expression will be different but there'll be um there'll be some simi- there'll be some similarities in terms of the hindu values that manifest with the um national identity that we're talking about
0: yeah, but th- then in a scenario like that, if let's say your British values clash with your Hindu values, has that, has that ever happened in your experience and how do you grapple with it then?
1: So I'm trying to think of an example, right? And for me, um, coming to apply dharma is probably like my ruling drive. So if I'm looking at um, what would be an example? so. and think of an example here to bring it to life. I don't think I've experienced a clash where I've felt uh, a dichotomy of myself. Um, my Hindu values really do feel like they're in harmony, like you know if I want to be um, serving my country, serving my karma uh is natural. I, I couldn't think of an example, Gosha, where I've experienced a clash.
0: Well, that's good. So, so that's a positive development. <laughs> your, your Hindu values and British values are not not, uh, not clashing with each other. Because I'll tell you where, where it happens. Now, we obviously have discussed caste. But in my opinion, I think sometimes, in my opinion, uh, I think when certain theological problems in Hinduism do arise or crop in certain discussions, in in my observation i think hindus outside india tend to struggle in giving robust replies and that's when this tendency to cling on to moral relativism or post-colonialism or oh that is just the abrahamic lens that is just a western construct that Mm. is just this that is just that happens and and i don't think so that that stems from a place of intellectual honesty that stems from a place of you know that's just a cop-out that's like a you know, get out of jail card kind of a situation where I just use this to avoid the scenario and avoid the questioning, which in many cases might be genuine. And uh, I think somebody also has uh, asked this question in that sense that what if a section of society wants to hold on to the past ideas while another one wants to go into the new age of modernity? So, you know, It's impossible that even inside the British Hindu Sampradaya or community, it's not happening, right? There might be people who want to cling on to certain old ideas and there might be Mm. young kids in the Hindu community that they want to upgrade their version of Hinduism and they want to go on. So in that case, how do British Hindus deal with that scenario? How would you deal with that then? I don't
1: necessarily see like a massive problem. In that okay. every welcome to their self-expression, right? Just because you might be older and have a point of view, doesn't mean I necessarily need to agree with you. And I think this is where some of the confusion does stem up because you have so many expressions. You have this as a, you know, you have going to the mandir regularly as an expression of being Hindu, and you have somebody who maybe you know connects far more with nature and never goes into the mandir as an expression of being Hindu. Both are equally valid, and both are equally okay. So I don't necessarily see. Uh, an issue with that where there is a, a conflict with these two individuals expressing how they are Hindu Well, that's for their own, you know dialogue development and for them to monthen it out and it's not a debate It'd be a discussion that would be that that would be you applying dharma to it, right? Which is actually can I look to understand your point of view? Can you look to understand my point of view and what are our own individual needs someone might need you know a place where they can meditate and they need uh, a symbol that allows them to transcend their sense of self. Another might just need nature. Well, that's just a very simple example. So I don't necessarily think that there's an issue in having multiple views uh, and multiple expressions. That that for me is the very nature of being Hindu versus anything else where you would hark back to, this is the way things are done. This is you know, the only way to do things. Um, and if you don't, there are serious ramifications, like which Hindu do you hear of saying, if you don't do this, this this way, You'll be killed, or if you don't do this this way, you know that there'll be, um, you know, you will no longer be considered a Hindu. I certainly don't hear that here.
0: That's interesting. Okay, another one. How do you deal with the misogyny? Mm. It, it is there in the at the textual level. As as a student of religion, I know it exists. Again. Somebody can come back to... I know the answer too, but I still have to deal with this, right? Uh, We're having a discussion. Now, somebody might come back. I reject all those verses. And the thing about Hinduism is you actually are allowed to reject them. That, that That's just a weird scenario. Like in Islam, I know you come from that background and you're like, no, you take it all or you leave it and I will kill you. Uh, I mean, so it's it's a different Should scenario. But, <laughs> but, but how do you... Okay, so if I was to in your exploration it's not that you've not mm. come across that you have so how did you deal with it a as a woman and as a hindu
1: yeah sure so so if we if we're going to take inspiration from text like i'm not about to go on and take sorry quote certain texts because i think i'd look at it from a broad brush perspective so take a step back and look at it as a whole um for me it's simple hindu dharma is an evolution it is continuously evolving Things that were written a thousand years ago may be relevant today. They may not be. And, you know, going back to the answer you said, I have the ability to reject them, but I don't just reject them point blank. I can consider them and I can look to see if they do have any validity in my expression or in my existence or in my, how I choose to live my life today. And I think like the one example that I'd like to call out for this one um, has been something I've recently been exploring is menstruation right so for for years and years and years um you would have seen things like oh you know in hinduism women aren't allowed to go to the Mundo when they're on the period or they're not allowed to come into certain parts of the house or this is not allowed or that is not allowed there's lots and lots um um stuff that you know will not be allowed and we viewed that as sexist, we viewed that as seeing women as impure. And that's been the vernacular that I think I've been exposed to when reading things online, when it, you know interacting with Indians and Hindus alike, right? So fine, I will definitely reject the impure part. But as you read into some of these texts and if as you read into the view of menstrual health, there will be this notion of actually um, when a woman is menstruating, she may need to rest right she may not want to or she may not be able to do certain things so she may need to rest okay fine so let's park that there today um, where I work in the last few weeks we've just had workshops on menopause and menstruation at work Um, I mean you know uh, global conglomerates that have now in part started to introduce menstrual leave so one day a month for women to take optionally when they need to rest when they're on their period Now, that is a choice that women have to exercise to be educated about their own health and to say, actually, today I feel crappy. I'm not able to work at my optimum. I'm going to choose today to rest. Now, if we can look at those ancient texts and if we can see what they're pointing to, but also start to see them from the point of view that they were written, maybe. We might actually say, rather than rejecting things outright, is there some relevance? is there something that I can apply in the world today and if so how so you know there's a whole arm of um, an Ayurvedic approach to menstruation there's something that I could take inspiration from now how will we as women and how will we as a society be able to really navigate this world without having to reject fully without having to accept fully if it's not right well the answer is education you know I think I find that for, for too much um, there are backward-looking practices enforced onto women um, such as you know there'll be Mondays in their constitution that will say you know a woman on her period cannot enter a woman cannot do xyz and what I found and what I've experienced is it's often women that look to propagate those rules themselves and so the way out of it for me is education if we can start to educate ourselves more on what you know what is our hormonal cycle how are we different as women and men right so men operate on a 24-hour cycle Um, women operate on a 28-day cycle typically so the journey for us is different we have to start with compassion um, with knowing that that journey is different the spiritual gap is different in the sense of how we then actually go and approach um, you know hindu practices on a day-to-day basis it it might be different it might not but we have to educate women to be able to exercise the choice for themselves is the point i'm getting to rather than it being a rule that's written in a book somewhere uh, and that being the status quo.
0: Got it. All right. So so I, I get it. But again, it's still here's my problem. I think a lot of times now, while you have, I think, given perfectly reasonable answers, I think at a community level, mm. sometimes in my experience, I'm not talking about India again, India, metal, but um, I think there is sometimes the defense um, stems and you know gets into the range of apology. If you know what I'm saying, that you know I mean I'm bored of listening to everything is a western construct, to be <laughs> to be very honest. Like if everything is a western construct, even your argument is a western construct, man. Uh, <laughs> That, that that's my whole that's my whole thing but uh, okay let's move forward from there and now now hinduism let's say now forget india for a while now something that i have again eh, you know understood from my interaction of so i've I, obviously i'm i'm blessed i guess and people will be like, get hey, blessed bol rah, abhi bol dia, sorry um um you know i've had the you know, unique experience of interacting with North American Hindus and British Hindus. Now, in the case of British Hindus, what I have seen is that maybe because they've been in England for a a much longer time uh, or maybe one or two generations more, their their sense of security about their Hindu Mm. identity is distinctly more than, let's say, North American Hindus. I think North American Hindus still, I see more moral relativism in North American Hindus, if I was to be very honest, than yeah. British Hindus. British Hindus seem to be more comfortable. Or have I kind of noticed something wrong and I'm just hanging out with all relativists. Or is that your experience, too, that maybe when you tend to stay for a longer time outside your native land, which is India, and then you're established there as a community, maybe then you get more Competent and confident about your identity,
1: right? Um, so, I've also experienced something similar, but I don't necessarily—I've not associated it with the length of time um, you know spent in a land. I've associated it with um, our university education. So, what I've seen, you know, through through the lens of my time at LHF um the syllabus, the education, the rhetoric, the speakers that were allowed, you know, the rise of council culture, so on and so forth, that started in America way before it started here in the UK. And so the ideas that we're exposed to, you know, the the experiences that we have in terms of what we're allowed to say, what we're not allowed to say, the policing, I think is fairly recent in the UK. And then that starts to creep into your experience as a Hindu. So I actually think we do see uh, you know, a good degree of relativism and confusion in the UK. But um, I think we've had limited exposure in those memes and in those ideas when compared to the US. So that's what I've attributed it to.
0: All right. Now let me start taking a bit of uh, a few questions from the live audience. So let's start here. So a lot of questions are actually about the experience of uh, British people. So it's very interesting. So somebody has asked, what change do you see in young Brits of Indian origin regarding the concept of Hinduism and practicing it? I guess what they're trying to ask is that. So let's say, so we have the generation that came from India. Obviously, they carried a certain aspect of Hinduism with them, but even within, let's say, the diaspora, the British diaspora, do you see, uh, let's say, the parents' generation and the generation after that, and then their kids, has their understanding of Hinduism and even, so have the levels of practicing gone down or gone up? I mean, what is the trend there? Okay. I'm
1: not sure I necessarily follow that question, but... What I could do is maybe just answer with, um, well, when you say practicing Hinduism, are we what, what what are we pointing to? Are we talking about so? It so the, okay, the, so uh, let's
0: say is the trend of meditation increased or puja or archana increased uh, that kind of a thing? Are we seeing more Hindus in the West in terms of the younger generation visiting temples, or has okay. the trend of visiting temples decreased? Is it decreasing or increasing? That kind of. Thing.
1: Yeah, okay, so so I think the expression is evolving. So in terms of engaging with what we would see as traditional in terms of Aarti puja, you know, visiting Mundos, I think, you know, across the country, this uh, need to engage young people, I think, is always there. And I don't think that's necessarily because young people don't want to engage, but I think that's at a local level. There's politics, there's all sorts of stuff. And, you know, one of the issues that I think we experience in the UK just generally is nepotism. Um, and I, when I say generally, I mean to the Hindu Indian community. I think that's something there that needs to be cleansed out. Um, and so that can you know, lead to a lack of engagement when it comes to young people who have ideas, are dynamic, want to move at a certain pace. But we are seeing an evolution where we would have seen more things from a community basis. There is a lot more practice on an individual basis, right? So meditation, yoga, being vegan, you know, um, becoming a, a, a sustainability activist, or looking to reduce your consumption and your impact on the world—those are all things that across the country we're seeing arise in, particularly from the Hindu community. And that's because it is kind of natural. You know, compassion comes naturally when you start to internalize these principles. It, it's not a big leap. It's not a big change. And even um, you know, for those who have been here a few generations, what one thing that I've observed as well is even those that are disconnected from their Hindu identity in, like, a traditional sense of going to the mandir and doing puja, they may be, um, you know, wealthy families, and their expression of Hindu dharma or Hindu ness, whether they know it or not, is you have you have individuals who will only choose to invest in technology that is in the sustainability sector or in the sector that promotes vegan food, so on and so forth. So there's multiple expressions and I think the expression has evolved um on this land
0: as well. Fair enough. All right. So but uh so you know wh- what I've noticed in North America so I'll tell you why. So whenever I visit North America I hear this you know I, I hear the elder generations uh, um, which go on saying that uh, they, they keep worrying about you know the amount of temple visiting kids reducing constantly, at least in North America, that's the trend. And uh, they, they, at least I, I see that worry amongst the Hindu community there. Is that the trend in, in, in England too?
1: So we're going through, I think, a bit of a, a transformation in the UK. Right. So traditionally, okay. mandirs have been um, a place for reflection, quiet reflection. They've been a place for ritual. They've been a place for maybe some life events. Right. And I think we're going through a bit of a transformation where that question is being asked: Is is that still the need of society? Because if you're mm-hmm. going to measure people with different, you know, different lifestyles, different needs, with what you know their parents, the grandparents' generations needs were, which the Monday would fulfil, it's not going to work. Of course, you're going to see numbers go down. And I think with more and more young people coming forward, or people asking the question to say, actually, how do we make this a space that young people can use? we'll start to see that tip so the questions that are being asked such as can this become like a sanskara kendra where young people can come to learn language can this be a space where actually we have um, you know we've we've got we've got land we've got fields and we've got a sports hall where we can come and play sports together or we can play things like core and gabadi can we transform the use of a mandir um, to fit the needs of this you know of the growing generation rather than what it's traditionally been? And that evolution, I think, is what's starting to form in the UK. So we're in the midst of it. I don't think we're quite there. We will still hear people in the UK talking about declining numbers, but that change is coming.
0: All right. So how are the outreach programs to, let's say, people of other religion from the community in England? Let's say if somebody wants to you know, teach Hinduism to foreigners, are, are there young kids involved in those activities too?
1: When you say foreigners, you just mean people who
0: live in England, right? Yeah, it could be anyone, right? Uh, let's say, uh, so let's say there are young kids. So are so now there are church groups, right? Church groups have those young kids going out and teaching Christianity to other people. Now I know Hare Krishna does that, but is there something done outside the Hare Krishna movement and where there are outreach groups where young kids are volunteering yeah. to yeah. teach Hinduism? Yeah
1: so so two things so the first is the principle of needing to you know spread or teach the tradition Just does not exist like it is not my duty to make everyone Hindu in the world like I'm not going to go to some special heaven to do that so the emphasis is slightly different I, I'm not here to uh, proselytize so that's like one fundamental difference that has to be factored mm-hmm. in when we answer that question right so there's no need for that I can be quite happy practicing what i do and then have a discussion with you i don't need to make you like me mm-hmm. and i don't need to establish some kingdom of god so that's one two yes you know there are there there are opportunities for young people to share what they practice so there's you know there's interfaith groups up and down across the country there are interfaith groups that intersect for different causes so like for climate action so on and so forth um but also you have sets so the national Hindu students forum that pair up with local schools. And so when there is an utsav, they will go in to say, well, this is the meaning of Diwali, this is the meaning of Holi." There are young people who are taking up the initiative um, at their local university to say, this is why I'm celebrating what I'm celebrating. Um, And then, you know, also sharing it with their cohort. So that level, yes, there is an engagement. I think the next evolution of that will be really the diversity and inclusion agenda is, is a growing space. You know, every university is appointing someone in this space, but to also educate them what it means to be Hindu, um, because we've seen you know certain levels of cultural appropriation on university campuses. That's probably the next step uh, in what you've defined and described as outreach.
0: So OK, somebody has asked, how do you explain to, say, a non-Hindu, whether it's a Christian or an atheist or a Muslim Brit, when they harp on caste uh, every time they discuss religion with a Hindu. So how do you deal with that? It's very specific.
1: So I would want to know what their experience has been first of all. So rather than having to be defensive, like, you know, what is your experience of caste? Where has this idea come from from you? And how many Hindus do you know that this is a relevant issue for? You know, like literally give me numbers, give me facts, because it's not an experience I have. It's not an experience any of the students I've interacted with have you know so where, where what's your data what's your source uh, why is this an issue for you
0: mm-hmm. all right got it that's a fair enough uh scenario okay let me see what else <laughs> this is such a I don't know web, I, I don't know when Hindus will have to stop answering this but do does the average Britisher still believe that the Hindu swastika is the symbol of the nazis
1: <laughs> oh my goodness no resoundingly no
0: <laughs> no so you don't have to deal uh, deal with that anymore because in america i think it, it is a problem right for hindu yeah, community showed there in
1: america um but no we've not we've not had that issue and you know that might be because there is a level of education at that primary school level where you have that exposure um but no we've not experienced that here
0: Mm, interesting. But America, it is an issue in America, mm. which is very interesting. Okay, this is a very good question. I like it. Aglagao, Aglagao. Is there a friction between first generation immigrant Hindus and British born Hindus with respect to progressive issues like female pundits, gay marriage, like uh, the New York Times article recently mentioned?
1: <laughs> I'm not familiar with the article, um, but in terms of answering the question, is there a friction? Um, I think there is different um, wells that sometimes communities can exist in. So, you know, within the you know across young people, do you see um, total assimilation between those that are first generation and those that are born here? No, not always. I think you know your your lifestyle, your practice, your world views are slightly different, so you can sometimes hang out in different circles when it comes to the expression of opinions held, um, or even when that assimilation happens, um, I think there is a friction, but I think it's a healthy friction. You know, only if you have some friction are you going to find new views and argue things out and become either firm or unfirm in the opinion and the facts that you hold dear. Um, So yes, I I do think we see it playing out, but I don't think it's an overwhelming friction. So when it comes to, like, for example you know, um, things like gay marriage, I think we're quite comfortable with it. It's not a big, as big as an issue as you might hope for it to be. You know, it's very easily resolved and dissolved and where young people or, you know, others are expecting like a really good like course on it or something more. Actually, it's something that can be explained in a few minutes where we're totally okay with all those different expressions uh, of, of humanity.
0: All right. Another good question. What are the behavioral dynamics between... British Hindus, let's say, who've come from India and British Hindus who have migrated from Sri Lanka, do they engage? This is a good question. So I'll, I'll add a bit of a story. I think one of the best experiences of my life was meeting West Indian Hindus. Uh, if somebody had the award for the coolest Hindus on planet Earth, those brothers and sisters are the coolest Hindus on planet Earth. The best music, the best dances, everything is amazing about them. So how is it it's it's an interesting question right because the overwhelming domination of hindus even the hindus who migrate right are usually hindus who are from india but you know there are Mm. hindus from west indies there are hindus from other parts of africa like kenya there are hindus from sri lanka so how how is that experience or even bangladeshi hindus or pakistani hindus
1: yeah um again it's not necessarily something that um, I've seen as an overwhelming issue just because like when I was part of Enj we had um, you know uh, we had people from Sri Lanka we had people from you know we had people from the Tamil community we had people from um, Bengal like we, we had all this expression and historically I think one of the um issues that we've had maybe in some some groups is a predominant north indian um concentration that's expanded out and as it's expanded out it hasn't just been limited to other parts of india it's actually been the full spectrum so we've had um i think a process of learning where you know people can come together and say actually what you're doing is just your expression of being hindu let me tell you about mine and so we've been able to share that Um, I think that when what you find at a grassroots level is that there are different communities of practice, there are different places of communities coming together, but is there a standoffish vibe between the two? No. Is there you know, the opportunity to assimilate? Absolutely. And I think with different Utsavs and with different community events, we do see that mixing. It's not necessarily an issue where there is a predominant narrative. Um, you have the ability to have both or more.
0: Alright, so this is another interesting question, very specific. Why did you choose to follow Hinduism instead of Buddhism? Did you explore Buddhism? Um
1: it's a good question. Why why do I choose this? So for me, you know, it's it's not necessarily the the label that I'm attached to, it's exploring and understanding what feels true and what feels right and what makes sense to me. And what happened for me was finding something that is plural, something that is a culture that I can connect with, um, and that ultimately makes sense to me, that drove me here. So I did look at Buddhism, but when I was much younger, I'll caveat that. Um, And for me, this um, idea of actually being able to explore beyond um, to, try and contemplate on what the atma is and having a you know a world view there is what i found wasn't necessarily something that i found in buddhism that was attractive and the itahas the culture you know i i'm indian in background it's a natural fit for me so um i also don't think it's a bit of an issue like buddhism for me is not something separate to be hindu is to be buddhist in some way as well it's not it's not one or the other which is why i'm struggling to answer this question it's not it's not something that's entirely separate in my worldview.
0: good uh, and and to that uh new Ambedkarites in india will say oh you are color you are and highlighting our unique identity how dare you trishti you
1: know that's, that's that's a bit of an issue here in the uk as well but not for the buddhist like buddhist community i'd say it's really for our sikh sisters and brothers um where we have you know, uh, a loss of identity, and that loss of identity stems from separating away from the Hindu culture. I have no qualms with seeing, you know, um, the Sikh expression as another form of the Hindu expression. I I see it as part of the same tradition. But where the Sikh community has separated away um, from the Hindu community, we see a loss of pluralism, we see an exclusive um, formation of moral judgment of what's right and wrong. and you know in some instances you're seeing that leading to a sense of militancy but in other senses and i've experienced this over the last 11 12 years um we find that particularly our young women but girls and boys are becoming more susceptible to converting to christianity and so i i do think that's an issue here in the uk um but maybe just slightly with it with you know with, with the sikh sisters and brothers rather in the buddhist community
0: so you know what I found something very interesting, and this is again my experience of living outside India, uh, the Sikh community outside India is very different from the one in India. Like I've said this many times on Sham Sharma's podcast also, like <laughs> you know, you have a conversation with the average Sikh in India and you just have to utter two words, Canada, Gurdwara, and they'll just look at you in a horror, the Sikh, not, not me. like, oh, <laughs> kind of an expression. Only. <laughs> And and the Pew poll recently is kind of a proof of that, where you know the the sense of belongingness in the Sikh community and their attachment to India, their sense of patriotism, nationalism, their Indianness, their their sense of commonality with Hindus um, is a heck of a lot different from the one outside in India and can, you know outside India, whether it's England or America or Canada. But obviously, in, even in Canada, we sent, you know, sympathies to the Khalistani. I, I don't know about any surveys in England, so I will not comment on that. Mm-hmm. But I know mm-hmm. there have been serious surveys done on Khalistani attitudes amongst Canadian Sikh community. And it's around 10 to 15 percent. It hovers in that area. So I will not comment on the on the. Uh, on the Sikh community in in England but I have heard yeah Punjabi lines like Asita Diwali ni manandeji kind of a thing which is very weird for me because uh, uh, all my friends uh, Sikh friends in India we've always celebrated Diwali and and Vaisakhi and Gurupura, all the festivals together for us Mm. these are all our festivals right we don't necessarily uh, think of them as the other so yeah so I do understand I think it's a very good observation that you made there right so Another good question here. Where do you see a greater amalgamation of various Hindu thoughts among Hindu community, North America or the United Kingdom?
1: Oh wow, um, where do I see? It's a very world? good
0: question. Excellent question. You know,
1: um, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that. Like, I find that there's so much diversity in thought that. Yeah, I I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily be qualified to answer that one. I don't think. I think the expression in the UK is beautiful. I have lots of different, wonderfully different que- um, discussions. But then I feel the same every time I engage with the US as well.
0: <laughs> All right. This is another good question. So is there any value in calling out the anti-paganism <laughs> when confronted with caste, cows and curry stereotypes? The word pagan in the West has bad connotations.
1: So do we want to call
0: out anti-pagan sentiments?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, I think there's the opportunity to reclaim the word if, if it's something that has a negative connotation, which I, I agree with mildly. Um, I think there is a process of education there in the sense of, do we want to use that word or do we want to use something slightly different? I don't see anything wrong with the word personally. Um, but I would say, reclaim it and change the meaning associated with it. We, we see that activity here in the UK with um, things like ICCS, where Hindus and, you know, bards, and Druids come together and look at commonalities, so where is it that both traditions can support one another? For, you know, for the Druid and pagan community, it's, it's around organisation and engaging the youth, uh, because it is a very small community. And for the Hindu community, something that we lack is that affinity with nature en masse, uh, and so both these communities are coming together uh, and actually celebrating the commonality of being pagan, of not you know conforming to an Abrahamic notion. So I think there's an opportunity. I think there is the opportunity to call it out uh, and reclaim the word. Yes.
0: All right. So here's a thought that I want to give to you. First, a little bit of my own thought and then follow it up with a question. Mm. Now, this is my, uh, now somebody might say, come on Kushal, that's an absolutely uh, ridiculous position to take, but I'm going to take it. Uh, my understanding of the Western discourse, the only good pagan is a dead pagan, so that they can fetishize it. That's my understanding. In the West, uh, I have noticed this, uh, the Western fascination with certain pagan cultures, uh, the Western left-, left wing, the right wing hates pagans. They're very open about it. Their religion tells them to hate paganism. So it's very open. Mm. But the left tends to fetishize pagans but they fetishize it because those pagans are like museum pieces right they are you know a a small population of 200 pagans there a small population of a few pagans there but that that you know sense of awe that museum piece thing is there but in the case of hindus hindus don't get that privileges because a hindus are a large number hindus are now politically asserting themselves And that's why they get a pushback. So have you, as a Hindu, noticed this, that while they fetishize Mm. the old school pagan of a certain background, that same privilege is not granted to the mothership of all paganism? Sure.
1: Um, So on your first point, that fetishization, You know, I I, I can't claim to have experienced that. I see quite a lot of mockery of Mm -hmm. veganism in the UK, at at least in my experiences in in terms of like the forums, etc. that I've engaged with at an individual level. I've seen seen that sort of sentiment. It's not something that's necessarily welcomed and with open arms. I think in Europe, you probably have a slightly different um, approach where it's more of a living thing. It's something that's growing. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a growing pride in the pagan identity. And there I would say, yes, I experienced that dichotomy where being pagan is seen as a new expression, a new spiritual dimension, but then the mothership of spirituality, pluralism and paganism is not met with the same accord. Yes.
0: All right. So, So last question and then we can maybe wrap it up. Mm. When you, because we've had offline conversations about this, I've always, the one thing that frustrates me the most about uh, I don't know how to convince somebody in the West that tolerance is bad. They, they they seem to think that tolerance is the most virtuous thing that one can have. I think tolerance is condescending. Tolerance is because when you have monopolistic memoplexes like Abrahamism, where there is no scope of Other, like you've used the word plurality a lot of times in today's podcast. When there is a lack of plurality in the meme itself, all the meme can give you in return is tolerance. I've always tried to explain why mutual respect is better than tolerance. And it's almost as if I've hit a brick wall whenever I've had conversations with non-Hindus in the West. What has been your experience?
1: So I think it's a mixed experience and um, I think the, the biggest issue I've come across has been within the Indian and Hindu community in actually understanding that principle. So that notion of we are all the same, we are all different paths to one truth and, mis- and supposing the tolerance that they're receiving as acceptance, I think is the biggest issue I've experienced. So mistaking tolerance for acceptance, so the other way around. And when engaging um, and so that changes the dynamic of engagement then because you're providing acceptance and receiving tolerance in return. And I don't think that that consciousness or that awareness of this is the status quo is quite widespread. And that's what, you know, where I think we lead to that moral relativism um, that you were talking about earlier or that you know identi- identity relativism that we were talking about earlier. When it comes to engaging with the other communities, I think that um, it's not necessarily okay because if you're looking at religious institutions, for a religion, for a follower of a religious institution that is exclusive for Christianity, for Islam, for the common Muslim, to be able to accept would nullify their religious belief. So how can there be acceptance when the very nature and the very practice that they have, um, you know, when they're following an ideology is to be exclusive? So until and unless the ideology changes, so, you know, Islam becomes a bit more plural, or Christianity becomes a bit more plural and can accept different expressions, that's not going to change. And with them being quite loud um, or pervasive voices here in the UK and abroad, we're not necessarily going to see that change creep into society either uh, when when engaging at that religious level. So, that's, All right. that's,
0: that's one view. So, I think I've got a very good question, and we can end with this question. It's actually very relevant to our discussion today. Do you see the emergence of new panthas like you had? You know, people don't realize that Hare Krishna as a movement. I'm not saying Chaitanya Mahaprabhu went, went there. Obviously, uh, that movement is 400, 500, 600, 700. X number of years. uh, But the point is that Srila Prabhupada went to America and he launched Hare Krishna from there. Do you see something like this happening in the future, where literally new panthas, new darshanas, come out of, say, America, Canada, England, Africa, West Indies, where new Hindu darshans come out, written by new scholars? Do you see any, any hope there?
1: Sure, why not? It's an evolving tradition, it's an evolving civilization if we find new ways to marry science, reality, experience with Hindu principles why shouldn't we create new languages new frameworks and new things um, and new darshanas um, I don't necessarily see that being an issue I, I could see that crystallizing so this evolution that we're seeing could crystallize into a new movement um, and I think you know what would be the test of time would be you know, are they linking into a tradition or are they going to be standalone? Like, I think, you know, if we speak of Indian, you probably have lots of self-styled gurus as well as some that are linked to a tradition. And that lineage, I would say, is something that's quite important to to give it that longevity and sustainability.
0: Uh, I, I, I think there is a humongous possibility in the next three to five decades, some serious um, darshan like a proper school of thought based on first principles, based on a new book, uh, a new writer coming out of West and within the Hindu community. Uh, the probabilities of it happening from England are far more than the probabilities of it happening from North America, in my opinion, uh, because vocism is just engulfed North America right now. And I think they have to beat that, that meme first, and then maybe they can think of it. England being a far more settled society, I think, you can only have these kinds of innovations where you are settled and mentally at peace. I think America is just struggling as of now, but um, I'm really positive about it. So uh, all right, time to wrap it up Drishti. So before we end today's discussion, uh, what would your final words be if you want to say something? And also, is there something you're working on that you would like to share with everyone?
1: Sure. So I think, you know, The British lens, I think, has been like the the title that you've given this podcast, right? And uh, how we assimilate um, our identities. And I think the one thing that will be true for any Hindu, no matter where they are in the world, will, you know, come back to some principles, I think, that was mentioned in one of your other podcasts. So the one that you did on who is a Hindu, I think that's universal. And so, you know, what are those principles? So that rootedness to the land, um, that appreciation of Parthia culture, an affinity and living in harmony with dharma and practicing pluralism, and you know, you asked the question earlier today of you know, has there been that conflict with British culture? And I, I said no. I can't think of an example. And I think that would be an experience that is true for any Hindu living in any, um, you know, any state in any country, because there is a, a harmonious civilization where assimilation and um, and expression, where being Hindu isn't meant to be a set of memes or uh, ideas that is in conflict um, with your flourishing, with your growth, and that which will be sustainable for beyond you as well. It's not just for your lifetime, it's for the next and the one after that as well. And so any culture, I feel like, would assimilate with that, and you can bring that harmony there. Um, and so I think there's you know some real beauty in that expression um, of what it means to be a British Hindu, an American Hindu, so on and so forth. Um, In terms of what I'm looking forward to, I think I'm looking forward to the narrative that I feel is emerging here in the UK of what a dharmic Britain looks like, you know. So how do we start taking our ideas from a personal practice perspective and, you know, really articulating and sharing them in the public sphere? So if I apply dharma to how the average Britain lives, what does that look like? Right? I mentioned we need an affinity with nature. We need to see, you know, the the demise of nepotism in the Hindu community and in the Indian community in the UK. And you know, we need to build institutions. We need to start looking at things from a value and a principle basis. We need to start seeing, um, you know, more of a confident expression of identity as we dust off this blip that we mentioned earlier. Um, and I think when, as all of these things come together, we'll have a stronger, more confident um, I don't even want to say it's a renaissance it's probably what you were referring to in the last question you know it's a new expression um and it's a new way of um understanding what that british hindu identity is through the lens of a dharmic britain so that's what i'm looking forward to and that's what i'm excited about
0: perfect uh i i hope the, you know the journey is amazing i hope we don't we don't mess things up uh that's that's my constant worry all the time uh, uh maybe hey, it's I not an
1: absolute process it, even <laughs> if we do we'll learn and we'll get on with it that's the beauty of it yeah
0: yeah i, I agree with you and i think it, being being true to our hindu selves i think the beauty of uh, hinduism or Sanatan dharma or this land has always been the ability to handle differences and still live together somehow uh, now we have a poll, finally, the Pew poll to prove that. <laughs> I always say that before we just used to say these things and nobody would buy it. Now we have a poll, at least the yeah. one in India. We have one finally. But uh, but this is the thing. And uh, I hope today's podcast, the, the aim was today's discussion was that it's good to be different. It's it's fine to be different. Uh, Raji Malotra used a beautiful word in his book, Being Different. He said, difference anxiety. I think one of the fundamental differences between us and the West has been we don't suffer from difference anxiety. I think the West, at a fundamental level, suffers from difference anxiety. And when you suffer from difference anxiety, you tend to devour the person, not physically, intellectually, spiritually. And I think the greatest strength of this land and the ideas that have emanated out of this land and Have gone all all over the world is that lack of difference anxiety. And I hope today's discussion makes you understand it's fine to be British and Hindu. And they don't have to be like India. And we don't have to be like them either. And we can still be friends. So, Drishti, I wish you all the best. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure.
0: Alright guys, time to wrap today's discussion up. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to the channel, like the video, leave a comment. You know you can troll me always. Ma comment ni Please support the podcast by becoming a member on the YouTube or subscribe on Patreon. You can buy the Work podcast merch on kushalmehra.com all or on, all on kadakmerch.com. You can send your donations via UPI. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Tomorrow is, I, I think I'm going to do the MMA live stream after Sham's discussion. And then on Friday, I'm going to be having another podcast. Until then, namaste, take care, goodbye. See you next time.